Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, interdisciplinary conversations about new works in the broad world of business research. I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. If you like what you hear today, please consider subscribing to the podcast or sharing with others who might like it too. And if you have ideas for future episodes, let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Our guests today are Sunil Betty, Assistant Professor of Business Law and Ethics at Indiana University's Kelly School of Business, and William Mara, Investment Manager at Validity Finance, a litigation funding firm. We'll be discussing their article, The Shadows of Litigation Finance, which was forthcoming in the Vanderbilt Law Review. I'll link to the article in the show notes for the episode. Sunil, Will, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thanks for having us. Super excited to be here, Andrew. Thank you. Great to be here. I wondered, as we start this conversation, if you might give the listeners and and me a little bit of an overview of just what litigation finance is. What purpose does it serve? uh, Who needs it? uh, And how does it work in transactional terms? Sure. This is Will. I'm happy to start in on that. So litigation finance is it has a broad definition. It's, It's basically the practice where a third party provides capital to a litigant or a law firm in connection with the legal claim. The most common form of litigation finance is what we call in the paper fees and costs funding, where a litigation funder like Validity, where I work, helps a litigant cover the often quite substantial fees and costs associated with bringing the litigation. So to put this in context, you know, imagine you're sitting there and you have a plaintiff side case. There are probably two ways that come to mind for how you might bring the case. The first way is that you could pay your lawyer by the hour to litigate the case. The problem with that is not everybody has the hundreds of thousands of dollars or frankly millions of dollars that it sometimes takes to bring a complex civil litigation. Alternatively, you could find a lawyer who could take the case on a contingent fee, litigating for no upfront costs in exchange for a share of case proceeds. The problem with that is not every law firm has either the financial ability or the risk appetite to take cases on contingency. And so what that means is, historically, if you didn't have the money, weren't able to find a law firm that had the money to bring the case, you might be locked out of court or you might have to settle for second-tier counsel. So litigation finance can be thought of as a third way forward, where a third-party funder can come in and provide the money that it takes to litigate a case. So one way to think about it is essentially project finance for litigation. So that's the most common form of fees and costs. There's a lot of other types of funding that happen. For example, claim monetization. Someone who has a claim could secure working capital or operating capital that is secured by that litigation claim, any proceeds that might eventually come out of that litigation. So let's say you're a company and there's an economic downturn, you might be forced to let some of your employees go. If you have this valuable litigation claim where you think you're owed money, but you don't quite have it today, you can secure financing backed by that case. With that in mind, is litigation funding something new under the sun? And if so, how has it been regulated and how does it maybe square with attorney ethical rules around, say, for example, fee sharing with non-attorneys? Yeah, so that's a great question. And it's one of the assumptions I think that we address and, and try to dig in on in the paper is this question of whether litigation finance is truly new or novel. That assumption, I think, is driving a lot of efforts 
to regulate the industry. The argument being, here's this new intrusion into our legal system, a third party paying legal fees. And in one sense, it's undoubtedly true that it is new. Commercial litigation finance firms, which typically finance business to business disputes, that's validity where I work, that, that's what we do. Those are relatively new, date primarily to about 2006 onward. But what we argue in the paper is that what is not new and what is in fact a long-standing and frankly welcome feature of our legal system is the practice of a third party or non-party to litigation paying the legal fees of a litigant. The most stark example, I think the most obvious example of that is the contingency fee itself. The contingency fee involves a non-party or third party to the litigation, the lawyer, financing the case with the expectation and hope of a profit if the case succeeds. And there's a lot of other forms of third party financing that we talk about in the paper as well. Another form that I think is pretty interesting is pro bono litigation. Groups like the ACLU, the NAACP, the Beckett Fund, what they do is they finance litigation on behalf of third parties other than themselves frequently. Now, they're not necessarily doing it for a financial dividend, but they're doing it for a precedent dividend, you could say, right? They're, they have some objective to shape the law to move the law. Pro bono litigation, obviously, is something that we welcome in our legal system. There's other forms of third party financing as well. For example, employers will frequently pay an employee's legal fees or a parent can pay their adult child's divorce fees. And so when you view litigation finance through this lens, I think it challenges the assumption that funding is new. And, and it has, I think, important implications for the regulatory debate, because we already have lots of pretty light, to be honest, regulation of these other forms of third-party financing. And so I think the, the challenge or the burden for those who would present new regulation potentially for commercial litigation finance, for the quote, modern litigation finance, is what exactly is new here that demands regulation different than the regulations that do or do not apply to the existing forms of third-party funding. I wonder if we could situate litigation finance in the literature. What is the existing literature broadly speaking about litigation finance and maybe the legal academic literature or other fields. Uh, And I I particularly would like to hear maybe a little bit about how litigation finance and how the literature on litigation finance addresses the potential for this funding mechanism to shape post-claim behavior on the part of the various players in a legal dispute. This is Sunil. I'll take a crack at this. So, What we found after kind of diving into the existing literature is that first, not much has really been said. As Will said, this is somewhat of a new form of financing, some of a new form of a financial instrument. And so you're not actually seeing a lot of scholarly legal work or finance journals or management journals or other sort of business journals really tackling this. What has been tackled, at least to some degree, is this post-claim behavior. And what we mean by that, Andrew, in the paper is simply that litigation finance comes into play when someone wants to bring a case, when someone wants to bring a claim, someone breaches a contract, someone takes your patent or or what have you. And the idea is that the availability of financing can change certain types of behavior. So what previous literature has focused on is 
these sort of behaviors after a claim has accrued. So for example, some literature has said that claims will go up, right? The number of cases people bring will go up. And that some makes kind of sense. It kind of makes logical sense as you make it easier, you know, cheaper to bring a lawsuit, you might see more lawsuits. So some work has, has focused on that. Other work has focused on how judges and juries make decisions with respect to cases that implicate litigation finance. So you might think that if a financier, you know, like Will and his company decides to take on a case or decides to finance a case, that that's probably a good case. And that might send a signal to a judge or a jury that, hey, this case has a lot of merit to it. So there's been work on that. There's also been work about on settlement agreements. Uh, uh, so how does litigation finance affect when to settle? Given that there's a larger availability of capital, you might think that the decision to settle gets pushed back, right? A litigants, particularly plaintiffs, are less likely to settle because they're not footing the bill. And so certainly there's been a lot of work, or at least some work, we think, thinking about that. In addition to, and this is kind of what Will hinted at, there's also been a lot of work thinking about ethics. You know, what happens when you actually get, you know, finance people involved in the legal process? You know, when you think of pro bonos, the ACLU, the NAACP, or you think of contingency law firms, those are still lawyers, right? They're still lawyers who abide by, you know, they're barred, they abide by a certain set of code or ethics. When you have, you know, business professionals kind of getting involved, does that change the nature of litigation? Does it change the nature of how a litigation is actually conducted? And so that's what I think, and Will can add if, if he likes, but that's what I think the most of the existing literature has focused on. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. The ethical piece is, is interesting. You, you, Sunil touched on a number of interesting issues related to attorney independence. Another piece that frequently comes up is disclosure. Are communications with funders between litigants and funders or lawyers and funders, are those subject to disclosure? Ought they be subject to disclosure? Do funding agreements between lawyers and funders run afoul of certain ethical prohibitions against fee sharing, for example, Rule 5.4 of the rules of legal ethics? And so you have a number of cases that have explored that, you know, as you might expect, given the prevalence of litigation finance, for the most part, Funding can and, and is done perfectly consistent with those rules, but there's a lot of thought about kind of what's the best way to, to manage the relationship between funder, litigant, and law firm. So that's the existing literature. And as you note, it has really focused on the post-claim side of the temporal timeline. I wondered if you could maybe introduce the novel contribution of your paper, which is a unified framework that you provide for understanding and thinking about litigation finance, which really exciting for me is that you extend the analysis to litigation finance's effects on pre-claim behavior. So, would love to hear a little bit about this unified framework and maybe what it has to say about how this funding mechanism shapes behavior before a claim even arises. Definitely. This is Sunil again. When we say unified, basically what we're trying to do is do exactly what you said, Andrew. We're trying to unify the existing literature on post-claim behavior with you know, a sort of new way of thinking about the effect of litigation finance on pre-claim behavior. So what do we mean by pre-claim behavior? Well, 
We mean that before something arises, before a contractual dispute, before a patent dispute, before some kind of dispute arises, the availability of litigation finance, just the concept that it is available, will change how people behave in the negotiation phase, in the contracting phase, and how they actually go through, carry out their contracts. So the one way to think about this is to think about litigation finance like a default rule, just like a law. You know, if we were to change the law, any sort of law that we we would change a law that says, you know, you can't open your shop only on Sundays. You can't open on Sundays, right? We used to have these sort of laws. Well, that's going to change how people maybe structure their their other hours. It's going to change how people structure the building, maybe how they hire their employees. So we, we have to recognize that changing rules or setting rules changes effects pre-temporally with respect to that rule. So if we think about litigation finance like a default, we can see that, for example, some companies or some contractual parties may be less likely to breach their contract, right? So if it's the case that it is easier and cheaper to sue you if you breach you know, our contract, well, then that's going to make it less likely that you're actually going to breach in the first place. We might actually see more parties honoring their contracts. We also might see more parties entering into contracts, knowing that I will be able to get funding and therefore sue you or be able to vindicate my right if you are to breach a contract, decreases the risk of entering into the contract. It decreases the probability of asymmetric information, which may increase the likelihood of contracting. And so what we do in the paper is kind of try to lay out at least theoretically, you know, different behavioral implications that just the knowledge of litigation finance would create. And Will, please feel free to add as well. I think that's great, Sunil. I agree with all that. You know, two other points I'll put out there, Andrew. I think one is it was interesting for us to think about how some of these pre-claim effects, as we term them, interact with some of the post-claim scholarship. So here's one example. As Sunil mentioned, there's this assumption in the literature that litigation finance will result in more case filings. And if all you're doing is thinking about this at the time that a claim accrues, maybe that makes sense, right? More capital to finance cases, bring cases, more cases. But that result might actually change when you pair some of the insights that we try to bring in pre-claim. So for example, as Sunil said, if there are going to be fewer breaches of contracts, that might mean less litigation because there's actually fewer breaches to litigate. Now, separately, as Sunil mentioned, we posit that in the contracting space, there might be more contracts that people enter into. And so if there's just more commercial activity happening, you might end up having more litigation at the end of the day. But that might actually be a good thing that we welcome because it's a function of a more well-functioning commercial society and more contracting. So I think that's the first point that I would add. And then the second point that I would add is that part of what's motivating all of this, and and I think one kind of key takeaway for both academics and regulators, as well as practitioners, is if all you're doing is looking at the post-claim effects, there's a pretty darn good chance that you're going to reach suboptimal regulatory conclusion or results about litigation finance because you're not considering the totality of the welfare effects. And so I think 
much of our paper is geared towards those audiences and saying, before we step in and regulate or while we do or whatever it is we end up doing with litigation finance, let's just make sure that we're fully cognizant of both sides of the coin, the way that this affects behavior, not only post-claim, but also pre-claim. Could you maybe discuss some of the regulatory and policy implications that you see for litigation finance and maybe what some of the different players in commercial litigation maybe care about within those regulatory policy issues? With that maybe in in mind, how should we be thinking about litigation finance and and how to regulate or deal with maybe those policy implications? Sure. I'll take a stab at this. And this is Sunil again. In our paper, we really focus on this contractual relationship. Right? We focus on two private parties, you can think of as two businesses, entering into some contractual agreement. At the latter half of the paper, we recognize that litigation finance might be much more broadly applied. Right, So it could be the case that litigation finance is utilized in class actions against products liability, maybe class actions against false advertising, maybe in things like patent litigation and maybe some sort of torts. So I think when we're thinking about who should be thinking about litigation finance, often we think of, well, it's just businesses. That's not necessarily the case. I think consumers can be thinking about it. I think regulatory agencies themselves should be thinking about it. One thing we propose is what happens if people want to bring claims against the government, right? We know the ACLU does this. We know that the NAACP does this, particularly with constitutional issues. But certainly there are other civil actions against the government that bring damages. Should the government be thinking about litigation finance being used against it? And so I think there's a lot of parties that need to be thinking about litigation finance. And, you know, Will can speak a little bit to the regulatory aspect of it. But I think if we really broadly understand how litigation finance can be used, we're going to start quickly getting into problems with how it interacts with kind of the existing legal system. And I think when we get into those problems, that's when we kind of need our unified framework in order to really kind of resolve some of these disputes. Will, and you can maybe speak to some of those disputes potentially. Yeah, and and so here's, for example, two topics that are the subject of debates either in state houses or in court decisions to potentially regulate litigation finance. Disclosure and champerty and maintenance. So disclosure, there are pushes in some state houses and in Congress to require mandatory disclosure of litigation finance agreements in certain circumstances. And during discovery, defendants sometimes seek discovery of any communications with the funder. So should funding agreements and communications be disclosed? Another topic is champerty and maintenance. These are the old doctrines that we read Blackstone to, to learn about prevents a third party from officiously intermeddling in a lawsuit and financing a lawsuit. Do litigation finance agreements violate these prohibitions against champerty and maintenance to the extent they still exist in some states? A lot of states have gotten rid of them. And so I think as regulators and judges think about these two topics, I think there's a couple of, I think, ideas at least that we try to bring forward in our paper. The first is To the extent we are going to use these to suppress litigation finance, we need to have this understanding of the welfare effects that we talk about, right? The full scope, both pre and post, to know if this is something that should be suppressed or encouraged. And then the second piece I think that's relevant to the policy debate is the way we point out in part one of our paper that there are these other forms of third-party financing that have long been 
accepted and established the contingency fee pro bono litigation. Interestingly, both of those used to be attacked as violating champerty and maintenance laws. Similarly, we don't require the scope of disclosure for contingency fee litigation or pro bono litigation that some folks want for litigation finance. And so there again, I think an implication or a question posed by your paper is, well, if these other forms of third-party financing aren't subject to these regulations along the disclosure realm or the champerty and maintenance realm, what's so different about modern commercial litigation finance that these regulations ought to apply to it? What key takeaways would you like our listeners to be thinking about from this paper and from this conversation? And are there any open questions that you might like to pursue in the future from this paper? Will and I, were, we're always thinking about maybe another paper to do down the line. But what we hope is that this kind of starts a trend to thinking about applying this framework to different questions or types of litigation finance a transaction. So first, you know, obviously in our paper, we do it with a contractual. We kind of lay out here are the effects uh, given a contractual dispute. You know, I think it'd be interesting if someone went through and, you know, did the same thing with a class action dispute or a dispute against the government and see what kinds of pre and post claim behavioral changes would happen there, I guess. So that would be one sort of thing that we would be thinking about that Will and I are thinking about. The other thing is that there needs to be more, I think, empirical literature on whether what we hypothesize and theorize that actually happens pre-claim behavior, if that actually happens. You know, do companies and some of these contractual parties feel like they don't want to breach contracts? Is it actually increasing the incidence of contracting? I think, you know, some really good empirical work of thinking about how one does that, how one creates an empirical data set that would allow, you know, some of those insights is super important. And I think lastly, and, you know, Will and I kind of went back and forth on this and in thinking about the welfare implications, you know, there's a lot of different lenses by which one can think of the welfare implications. And so what we do is kind of think about it with respect to law and economics. It's a finance transaction. It's business. It's, it makes sense. But, you know, I teach business ethics. And a lot of what I do is, you know, try to teach and encourage people to apply different lenses to business decisions, lenses like a Rawlsian approach or a critical race, critical gender, critical studies approach, or justice approach. And so it'd be interesting to think about other sorts of lenses that might change how we think about the welfare implications. Is this a just way of doing business? Is this a just way of helping those people who can't afford you know, certain types of litigation? Or is it actually unjust to parties that you know, are wealthier that actually have the funds to do it themselves? And so I think thinking more broadly about litigation finance in the context of a unified framework is where we think you know, people should be pushing the literature forward. I don't know if, Will, you have some thoughts as well. Maya Steinitz, who's a, a professor at the University of Iowa, who's written a lot of really great and, and thoughtful pieces about litigation finance, she had a paper out last year that called litigation finance likely the most important development in civil justice of our time. And I think that sentiment animates a lot of what we're trying to do in the paper, which is to really, and, and as Sunil said, some people are starting to think about it, but I think in relation to kind of its importance today and its importance over the next decade or more, there really just is not that much 
scholarship out there on litigation finance. And so I think aligning with the specific points that Sunil said, our paper is in part just a, a call for folks to, to think and write about this space a lot more because we think that there's a whole bunch of other implications that we probably haven't thought about yet for how litigation finance is going to affect parties' behaviors in the courthouse, outside the courthouse, before claims even arise, after they do. And we're just hoping to kind of kickstart a little bit more of that conversation, which has begun, but we hope will continue in more earnest in the coming years. Our guests today have been Sunil Betty, Assistant Professor of Business Law and Ethics at Indiana University's Kelly School of Business, and William Mara, Investment Manager at Validity Finance. We've discussed their article, The Shadows of Litigation Finance, which is forthcoming in the Vanderbilt Law Review. I'll have a link to the article in the show notes for the episode. Sunil, Will, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for having us. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard, Please consider subscribing to the podcast or leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app or let other people know about it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings.